Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and our minds be pleasing unto you, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I invite you to be seated this morning. Matthew, our gospel writer this morning, has a very brief account of Jesus' birth. We hear it this morning and we immediately miss Luke's full and rich account. Where are the manger, the inn, the shepherds, the star? Matthew must not know how to tell a good story. I mean, the whole birth narrative takes up just one and a half verses. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. And then we jump down. Joseph had no marital relations with her until she had born a son and named him Jesus. That's it. Two verses bookending the larger story and drama of the turmoil that this birth created, and it leaves us pining for Luke's account. But we'll get there Christmas Eve. But let's stick with Matthew. Matthew kind of begs the question, could you start your depiction of the life of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, in a more matter-of-fact way? If you sneezed this morning, you may have missed it. But while I do miss the fuller description Luke gives with the mangers and the shepherds, the angel and all the rest, there's something fitting about Matthew's spare depiction. Because truth be told this morning, most people did miss it. The local news team didn't follow Mary's pregnancy. There were no camera crews or gaggle of first century reporters awaiting the birth. There were no baby showers beforehand or christening invitations afterward. From all we can tell from Matthew's story, Just about no one noticed. Which is why Matthew wrote, of course. He writes, if only in a few sentences, about the birth of Jesus the Messiah, and in this way he bears witness to an event most of the world ignored. Except it wasn't as if the world actively ignored anything, because it was just a birth like millions of others, which is, once again, the point. Jesus came as one of us. Jesus was born like we are, lived as we lived, loved and laughed and suffered as we do, and died as we will die. And yet on the third day, God raised him from the dead that we might no longer live in fear of death, but I'm getting ahead of the story. It's Advent, for now we should wait. Content with Matthew's spare story, his odd version of the incarnation, for Matthew paints a picture of the utter normalcy of the Holy Family, which means, of course, he tells us about the complexity, the confusion, and the the frailty that attend this family just like every other family. What is exceptional is that God works through this family to save, to draw near to us in love, in grace, and in salvation. But if we read more closely, Matthew is telling us a wonderful story, 
Allow me to toot Matthew's horn over Luke's this morning. Matthew begins his gospel with a long genealogy. If you go back to the first chapter and you open it up, you'll read 17 begats. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, all the way back to Father Abraham. But there's something strange about Matthew's genealogy, and it differs from Luke's story. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, it names five women in the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Each of these women that link Jesus to the long-awaited Messiah from David's line, each of these women acted boldly. And they acted against convention in order to bring about some kind of grace, some kind of justice, some kind of mercy. But each of these women on the surface looked as if they were on the very edge of social convention. These women were the ones in the story that would have been judged by the Pharisees and the scribes, by the morally righteous in church on Sundays as unrighteous because they had scandal written all over them. And yet it was their actions that maintained the royal lineage of Jesus leading to Mary. Tamar, whose husband died, was denied the protection of marriage, and so she tricked her father-in-law into giving her children, one of whom was Perez, an ancestor of King David. Rahab is named in the genealogy. Rahab was a prostitute. She was the mother of Boaz, an ancestor of King David. Ruth, she's named in the genealogy. She's not even a member of the house of Israel. She's a Gentile. But if you remember, she laid at the feet of Boaz, and so she became the mother of Obed, an ancestor of King David. Bathsheba was taken from her husband Uriah by King David. And she became the mother of King Solomon, the next king in David's lineage. And that brings us to Mary, pregnant when she shouldn't be, appearing to be unrighteous by conventional standards, and yet here she is as the axis on which the story spins. Surely there are more fitting ways for God to work ways more acceptable to our self-righteous moral palates. Well, no, in fact. Matthew wants us to know that this is the most fitting way for God to act. Matthew is a crafty storyteller. He is training us to see the world differently. He wants us to see that God acts in and through people and situations that we deem beyond the pale. God acts in and through people who have been judged by conventional standards to be less than helpful. 
Matthew wants us to know that God acts in and through the messiness of life. Biblically, it seems the messier the better for this God. Well, the last place we expect to find God, God shows up with salvation in hand. It's as if Matthew wants to let us know that there's no situation no person, no place, no relationship, no moral mess that is beyond the saving grace of God. Matthew, in this birth narrative, thinks that God, in fact, works through those who know the edges of life precisely because they aren't under the illusion that they have things held together. Matthew thinks that God takes up residence with those who would rather risk the judgment and scorn of proper people rather than risk missing the justice, love, and mercy of God. And of course, Matthew is right. God does. God does take up residence with us in the embarrassment and humility of the scandal of a first-century unwed pregnant Mary. Surely there were more fitting ways for God to come to us. Again, Matthew wants us to know that this is the most fitting way for God to act. St. Augustine called it the humility of God. In blood and pain, God enters our common, messy life to make it holy through and through. Dare we name this God this morning? Dare we name this God with Matthew as Emmanuel? God actually with us. This great storyteller wants us to know that in the confusions and complexities of human life from top to bottom, God is with us. And the miracle of the story is that we too are named in it as the descendants of Abraham. You and I, by virtue of our baptisms, we are named as those confronted by the grace of God in the middle of the complexities of who we are. We are named as loved by this God who is with us. This God has come in Jesus, not just from Mary, but for her. And for you too, so that his love and grace might work through you as well. None of us. Not one of our messes, not one of our mistakes, not one of our failures is beyond the grace of the God who comes to us in Jesus. We are all, each of us, walking Advent miracles. Amen. Amen.